0: Verses 20 to 23, Uh, we had to kind of cut it, cut things off uh, at the end of verse 19 last time. So we'll pick up verse 19 again a little bit um, and focus on verses 20 to 23. Remember that this chapter, Mark 13, is um, Jesus, largely Jesus answering two questions posed to him by his disciples so jesus told them that the temple was going to be destroyed and so naturally they wanted to know when that was going to happen and uh what would be the sign or the indication that these things are about to take place um and those are very natural questions right and They asked them in part because the temple had been destroyed before in 586 BC when the nation of Israel, well, the nation of Judah, um, had uh, sinned against the Lord, broken their covenant with the Lord, and so he sent the Babylonians uh, to take them into exile and to destroy the temple. And so they knew when Jesus said the temple was about... would at some point not have one stone left standing upon another. They probably had a pretty good idea that he didn't mean an earthquake was going to cause it to fall down, that this was going to be a cataclysmic event, probably like the exile by the Babylonians, where, I mean, it was a siege of Jerusalem and the temple was... Burned to the ground and all this. And that is what Jesus was talking about. In 70 AD, uh, the Romans besieged Jerusalem and are from 66, I think, to 70 AD. They besieged Jerusalem, and they destroyed the temple. And so part of what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 13 is that coming destruction of the temple that would happen in 70 AD, which, like we mentioned before, that was about 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion. So that's one generation away from uh, the, the moment when Jesus explains all this. It was not that far in the future. But we have also seen already in uh, our study of this chapter that some of the things that Jesus says uh, seem to um, be talking about something beyond the events of 70 AD and seem to reach beyond that event to um, what's going to happen at at the very end. Um, And there are some good reasons for thinking that that is part of what Jesus is talking about. In fact, this afternoon, uh, I was reading uh different commentaries about these verses that we're talking about tonight, and I found um a statement about the way Jesus's words work here that I thought was really helpful. Uh, you've probably heard me say before, repeat before and it's it's a something that's been said thousands of times that the prophets in the Old Testament um, that their prophecies are like a mountain range. You know, like when you're far away from the mountain range, it looks flat, like there's just a bunch of mountains in a row. But when you get up close to it, you realize some of those mountains you could see are actually very much farther behind the first row of mountains. And some of the Old Testament prophecies are like that. It... it they um, sort of telescope events together. So you might be reading somewhere in Isaiah and, uh, you know, part of what you're reading is going to be fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus. And part of what you're reading is going to come and be fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus. But there's no there's no marker in Isaiah to tell you that these are going to happen thousands of years apart, you know, um, so similarly, uh, Jesus' words work similarly, and he, this I thought was a helpful way to describe this. This is from a, a scholar named Cranfield uh, from an earlier generation, um, but this is what he says, the impending judgment on Jerusalem, so that's AD 70, and the events connected with it um, are for Jesus, as it were, a transparent object in the foreground through which he sees the last events before the end which they indeed foreshadow. So he's saying the events of 70 AD Jesus is talking about those but they're sort of like um sort of like a window pane that he can see through. It's got a certain shape to it and a certain tint and a hue to it, but he's looking through those events to the events of the end. So they they're connected and they go together even though they're distinct. And that's part of why um, while we're studying this chapter, we can we can be looking at one verse and think, yeah, that's totally about 70 AD. And then the next verse think, I don't think that can be about 70 AD. That has to be about like the end end. Um, that's not because we're mishandling it that's because that's how it seems to work so one of those places where it seems like we must be jumping ahead now to the very end is verse 19 this is where we left off last time where jesus says for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that god created until now and never will be now when we read that we think That can't be true of A.D. 70 because we know there is serious tribulation coming in the future at the end, around the time of the return of Christ, um, that uh, is going to be worse than A.D., what happened in in the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, So that sounds like um, it has to be even further in the future. Now, it doesn't have to be. I mean, there are ways to explain that verse that don't require you to interpret it as being about the very end. Right? I think I mentioned last time um, that some of the things that happened around the destruction of Jerusalem are so bad that you could uh, you could understand uh, language like this being used about that event. Like one of the things, um, the one thing I remember for sure reading um, last time was that um, they ran out of trees or of wood to crucify Jews on, the Romans did. They, they ran out, they didn't have enough materials to crucify all the people that they wanted to. So I mean, that just gives you an idea of the scope of the horror of the destruction that was going on at this time. So it could, I mean, it could be sort of um, hyperbole, sort of overstated language about the events of eighty seventy. 70. Um, but most of us, I think, when we read it, we don't that's not how we read it right we think he must be talking about something future but something else that i stumbled upon and this is just uh, i've mentioned before you know whenever we talk about the end times often one of the things i say is whatever your interpretation of the end times about the specifics you know we all agree jesus is coming back we all agree about the new heavens and the new earth but about the timing and the specifics there are lots of disagreements um And I often say, you know, whatever position you take, there is someone smarter and godlier than you who disagrees, you know, which is good for us to remember so that we don't hold these um, uh, opinions really too tightly. We don't get too dogmatic about stuff that lots of Christians disagree about. So I was reading, um, uh, again, reading a commentary this afternoon, and I I don't think I'd ever thought about this verse this way before, and I don't agree with him. But it just shows that there are other ways of thinking about some of these verses that kind of make you, if you've never heard them before, make you scratch your head and go, well, maybe I don't know as much about how this works as I think. So here's what this guy says. He's talking about the phrase um, and never shall be or never will be at the end of verse 19. So this tribulation is going to be so bad. There will have never been tribulation this bad before and there never will be again. Here's how he interprets that. He said the phrase and never shall be clearly indicates that the tribulation is not the distress which accompanies the last days. As great as the oppression will be, it is nevertheless... Not to be immediately followed by the end for the time will be ex- time will be extended with the possibility of other the lesser tribulations. So he's saying if if he says this is the worst tribulation that has ever happened and there will never be another tribulation as bad as that ever again. That implies that there will be more time after this tribulation with tribulations that aren't so bad. Otherwise, why say never will be? Now, most of us think they say never will be because that's it. <laughs> that's the end. But when, he, but when he says it that way, you, you at least have to stop and go, well... That's possible. That's a reasonable argument. It's a reasonable argument. And it, whether or not you're going to agree with it is going to hinge on how you interpret other parts of the Bible and what they say about the end. Is there going to be a, a suffering at the end that's worse than there's ever been? Or is it possible that suffering that happened earlier is going to be worse than what happens at the end? You know. Again, just say that to say, like, there are intelligent people who make good arguments that, you know, make us at least rethink our positions or at least kind of, you, you have to sort of, if you're going to double down, you've got you to think through it a little more. You know, why, why don't, why doesn't that work? Why doesn't that fit here? All right, so you have this great, terrible tribulation, which most of us would agree is talking about the end. And then he says in verse 20, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now, a um, couple of difficulties here. One of them is um, when he says, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would, he be, would be saved, does he mean no one would go to heaven? Or does he mean no one would be delivered from this time of tribulation and everybody would die? Which one does he mean? Because the word salvation in the Bible does not always mean like the forgiveness of sins and life in heaven. Sometimes it means bodily healing, right? You're saved from your sickness or your disease or whatever. So um, it could be either one. And I think even in the context, you can make good arguments either way. Uh, because, he says at the end of verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. All right? So if you are a believer, you're going to persevere despite persecution, and the people who are going to be saved are the people who remain faithful to the end. It's not that they earn their salvation by being faithful, but they demonstrate their salvation by being faithful. Just like we're told all over the Bible that we're going to be judged according to our works. We don't get to heaven based on our works, but if we are saved, we will have good works, and those will be the evidence at the judgment that we belong to Jesus, and it's those who have good works who, you know, will inherit eternal life. Not on that basis, but as the evidence. So, um, does he mean here then if he hadn't cut that time short nobody could have endured and so nobody could have been saved that's a possibility or does he mean if he hadn't cut that short nobody would have survived nobody would have escaped again you can make a good argument either way but the point is not to settle that dispute but the point is to say it's going to be so bad um, that it If it were allowed to continue indefinitely, uh, there would be no hope on the other side of it. But because God is merciful, he is going to cut short this time of tribulation. And he says specifically, for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And we um, started talking about this a little bit on Wednesday night. This came up after our study about repentance. Um, And um, we... There's a lot we could go into here, right? But here, uh, I think it's sufficient just to say um, that it's clear in the Old and the New Testament that God has chosen his people, right? Israel is a chosen nation. In the New Testament, it talks about those who are uh, elect, those who are predestined, those whom God chose, Um, and regardless of how you try to... Put that together with all the rest of the things you find in the Bible, it is undeniable, right, that God chooses his people. Um, he chose the nation of Israel and not all the other nations. That's just true, right? Um, and so he has his people whom he has chosen. This is the, the church, believers, Christians. Um, and he says, for their sake, he shortened the days. For the sake of his people, whom he has loved from before the foundation of the world, he uh, shortened this time of tribulation uh, in order to preserve them uh, and to protect them uh, for their sake. Again, we could go. I mean, we could spend the whole night talking about uh, that verse and, and who the elect are and how you put all those things together. But um, I think. At least for now, it's sufficient to say this just means it's it's God's people, right? It's it's his people. In the the Old Testament, that was Israel. In the New Testament, that's Jews and Gentiles who belong to Jesus. Um, They are his elect. So um, then he says, and then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. So there it is again. All right. So uh, he had, Jesus said something like this earlier in the chapter. Um, back at the beginning of chapter 13, he talked about the fact that there would be false messiahs uh, in verse five or, or excuse me, verse six. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and they will lead many astray. Here he says the same kind of thing again. If anyone says to you at that time, look, here's the Christ, or look, here he is, there he is, do not believe it. Um, and here's something else that I had not noticed, but uh, I think is a, is a reasonable explanation of what's going on here. Um, this commentator says, hear the point. So in verse 6, it was sort of a general warning about false messiahs, but here he says the point is rather not to be deterred from flight by the claim that the messiah was here or there. In other words, Jesus has just told them when you see the abomination of desolation, right, let the reader understand, talking about what Daniel talked about, it's already been fulfilled in one sense, but a similar thing is going to happen again. When you see that taking place, Don't go down into your house and get your coat. Don't come back from the field to get your, you know, You go. Get out of town. Flee. And so what he's saying, what Jesus means here is, don't let somebody say, I know it looks bad but I'm God's promised deliverer and we're going to get through this. Okay. You just stick here in Jerusalem with me and, and don't flee. Don't let somebody rise up at that time and say, um, you know, stay here. Don't flee. Like Jesus said, I'm the Messiah and God's going to deliver us in some miraculous way. I, that's very possible, very possibly what Jesus, um, was talking about, um, uh, about that particular time. Of course, from verse 6 uh, and possibly from this verse as well we know this is a, a there's a long-standing application for this right that there uh, are plenty have been plenty of opportunities for people to arise and claim to be the Messiah people are still doing it today right there's still cults and whatnot where you find people who are essentially claiming to be Jesus themselves they're claiming to be the Savior they're claiming to be the Messiah they're claiming to be God. Uh, And we're warned repeatedly in Scripture not to listen to those who do such things. Verse 22 is particularly significant because it reminds us that uh, these false messiahs can be very persuasive. Verse 22, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. That reminds us that People are able to perform signs and wonders even if they have not been sent from God. That is an important truth to recognize. Because um, it's very easy to assume, well, if this guy can heal people, if this guy can do signs, if this guy can do this, that, or the other thing, he must be from God. No, he doesn't necessarily have to come from God. Think back to the Exodus. When Moses began uh, dealing out the plagues, right? God sending plagues on Egypt through Moses. At the beginning, the magicians in Pharaoh's court in Egypt were able to go back and forth with Moses. Oh, you can turn water into blood, so can we. You can bring frogs up, so can we. Uh, You can turn your staff into a serpent, so can we. Well, his staff ate theirs, but, you know, they were, they were keeping up, more or less, right? They were able to do the same kinds of things for a while that Moses could do. Now, eventually, they said, this is the hand of God. We can't, we can't replicate this. We can't imitate this. this. This is God doing this. But for a while, they were able to say, essentially, you think you've got authority from God? We can do the same stuff you can. Why should Pharaoh listen to you? instead of doing what he wants to do. Um, They were able to perform those signs and to deceive people. And Jesus says, there are going to be false prophets, false messiahs, who are able to perform signs and wonders. And if it were possible... And it's not is what's implied there. If it were possible, they would even lead astray the elect. They would even lead astray God's chosen people. It's, now it's, it's not because God protects and preserves his people. but if it were possible, they would. And this is not the only place that the Bible tells us this that um, this kind of thing can happen in second in, uh, Thessalonians 2 verse 9 uh, it was talking about the man of lawlessness, uh, and it says, "The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and then verse 10, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. So this man of lawlessness is active by the power of Satan and he has power to do false signs and wonders. So uh, just because somebody can do what appear to be miraculous things does not automatically mean that they've been sent by God. So that's something that we need to be aware of because there are all kinds of people who want you to believe for various reasons that they have been sent with special privileges and powers by God, um, either so that you will give them money or so that you will join their cult or whatever. Um, but you have to watch out for them. Jesus warns us to watch out for them. And then um, that's what he's how he finishes this section in verse 23. He says, But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. All right, so you don't don't fall asleep. Right, don't get lazy. Don't be deceived. Have your guard up. Be discerning. And I have told you all this stuff before it happens. So that you won't be caught off guard, right? um, It's kind of like if you, um, you know, if you're in a military camp or somewhere where you have guards set up, you know, uh, to keep watch every night. Um, you know, sometimes your guards fall asleep, and sometimes uh, they can do that and get away with it. It doesn't matter because there was no enemy out there to really be wary of. But if you suspect an attack on a particular night, you talk to your guards ahead of time and you say, look, I, I think something's coming. Do not fall asleep tonight, right? I, I, we've got intelligence that indicates our enemy is moving this way and that they intend to you know, infiltrate our camp sometime before dawn. And so we need you to be on red alert, right? Well, there is really no excuse for falling asleep that night, that's kind of what Jesus is saying. I've told you about what's coming, so be aware and make sure you don't fall prey to these things because, I mean, you shouldn't anyway, but now that I've warned you, you really have no excuse for falling for this, these things because I've warned you in advance. You know about the trials that are coming, you know about the deceptions that are coming, you know about the suffering that's coming. Do not be led astray and do not be discouraged but persevere to the end and trust me and you'll be okay. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. So any thoughts or questions about